Greetings, everyone. Welcome. My name is Andy Herndon for the Play for Keeps podcast, an initiative of the Ashland New Plays Festival here in beautiful Ashland, Oregon. We're recording compelling new plays and conversations with amazing playwrights and world-class actors, and we're sharing them here with you through our podcast, making theater accessible worldwide and on demand. We have created this series to let you in on the front lines of new works for stage. Today, we're featuring an amazing conversation between Natalie Simons and Rachel Crow. Natalie is a playwright, actress, and novelist based in St. Petersburg, Florida. She is currently the playwright in residence at the American Stage, where she is developing her play, The People Downstairs, which will have its world premiere in March of 2020. Her play, Naming True, is a part of our Play for Keeps premium collection. The play features Christiana Clark and our second guest, Rachel Crowell. Rachel is an actress, musician, photographer, designer, and storyteller currently located in Ashland, Oregon where she is in her second season as a part of the acting company of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, where she is currently captivating audiences as Duke Sr. in As You Like It and performing an array of characters in Between Two Knees. Please stay tuned at the end of this conversation for a very special announcement regarding next week's show. Now, without any further ado, a conversation between Rachel Crowell and Natalie Simons. Okay. Hi. Hi, Rachel. I'm so glad you? to finally meet you. I am right back at you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I loved, uh, you know, I did, I said yes to doing Naming True because I really wanted to work with Christiana because I didn't have a chance to work with her otherwise, and she's right. amazing. Right. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, I've never read the play, but here's an opportunity. Let's go see what happens. Right. And I'll be damned if that wasn't one of the most fun experiences I've had in a really long time. Oh, so wonderful. thank you. Wonderful. Oh. It, was, it was also like a chance for me to play, well, A, much younger than I am, because it's a podcast. Nobody's looking at me, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Um, but it was also, there was a delightful kind of like um, a what-if kind of quality to playing Amy, just uh-huh. based on my own personal experience, because I transitioned when I was around 30. Uh-huh. So I had, you know, a decent chunk of time on the planet in a different right. guise. Uh, it was interesting to imagine a younger version of myself mm. transitioning. Mm-hmm. And that was actually really a kind of a delightful what uh-huh. if. Oh, see, great. See, you know, yeah, it was it made it um, a more interesting thing to do than if, if that hadn't have been there. And the play itself is dope. It's great. It's super yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. Great time reading it. But it had that extra kind of, you know, whatever. Yeah. I'm sure there's a really great French word for that. Right. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. That's really, it's a, it's, it was, it's, this has been such an interesting journey with this, this particular play because I wrote it in 2015 and it world premiered in 2017 and when I wrote it, I had these, came up with these, they were the two separate stories. Amy and Nell's stories were just, came from one from a news story and one from an image that I had and a, a poem, T.S. Eliot poem. And when I, I married these two stories and came up with this sort of bizarre meeting between these two sort of unlikely women that meet in this motel room, I wasn't thinking about casting. I was thinking just about telling my story. Of course, of course. Right, right. So when it came time to cast both the readings, which were done in Seattle at ACT, and then the production at Urbanite Theater in Sarasota, it was such a 
delight to be casting trans actors. I'll and bet. my own naivete, and I don't mean to sound like I'm not woke or so. I just didn't. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking it will probably be a cis woman, you know, a cis girl playing. I, and so it was so incredible to bring in trans voices, especially the woman that, that originated the did the first reading, so I could really bring her story into it, and she helped me so much in developing it. Oh, uh, that's it, obvious. That, yeah. Yeah, it was, there, I mean, there, it, was it, it definitely had the sense that like you had listened yeah. to people of the community in the version that I read. Yeah. There was there was a nuance there that isn't always there. Like an informed sense of no, this is actually what this is like. Oh, that's great. And that's something else I didn't want it to I wanted it nuance is like a great word because I didn't want I wanted to nuance it and not to be about a trans person transitioning or I didn't want it yeah. to be, I didn't want it to be a teaching moment. Do you know what I mean? I wanted it to be a story about a human being. And that, that was one an of, element of who she is. That was it's one of the things I liked most about it is that yes, her being trans was, you know, had implications for the story. Right. Not really. Right. Right. The central right. story isn't about her being trans. She just happens to be trans and that colors the story. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, as a as a performer who's always looking for opportunities, um, it it was also just delightful. It's great when the stories about marginalized communities are told in a way that it's not particularly about the thing that marginalizes them. It's yeah. about the people they are that maybe they have turned into because of the marginalization. Exactly. Exactly. So it colors it. It definitely shades it. it ha I mean, it had to. I, it, that was part of it. But that wasn't the story is about the connection between these two women and how they change each other and help each other heal. Exactly. And find each other. And Amy looking for a mother type of figure and Nell feeling like she's going to die alone and to have this Amy come into her life and sort of rescue her. Not that I don't. I don't think Nell lives happily ever after. I do think no, it's think terminal, so but <laughs> but at least she's not going to die alone. You know, so no, that was that's exactly. the story, and yeah. that's sort of a nugget of what it was. And I didn't want it to be about an African American <laughs> woman and a trans woman me and make it about that because no, I'm exactly. a cis white cis woman. I, that's not my story to tell. I wanted to tell the story about these two women finding each other and healing Absolutely. each other. Yeah. What was it like hearing our version? Because you had amazing. next amazing. to do with it. So it had to have been like sort of kind of out of the blue in a way. It you know was. I mean? It was. And it was also great. So I know that um, Play for Keeps is, I know this isn't the goal of what why they're doing this, but as a playwright, to hear it by two beautiful, brilliant actresses, to see you guys, hear you guys do that and to not be seeing it, I was informed more about my work than I ever have been as a playwright. Oh it was my almost God. as if hearing those sort of disembodied voices, it told the, st I got to hear the story. It was so fresh. And I got to find where I even made some tweaks since, you know, like, okay, there's a few moments that stood out that I needed to do a little bit of, just a little trimming or editing on. So it was so neat to hear it and not see it. 
Yeah, that's that's what I was curious about because the experience is sort of unique for yeah. this kind of thing. Because I I think it's actually kind of brilliant. Me too. In its own way, because it allows for really independent takes to happen, right? And so many cool happy happy accidents artistically happen from somebody who has no idea what you actually intended. Exactly. And so they go run off on their merry little way, and all of a sudden you're like. I didn't even know that Merry Little Way existed. Exactly. Yeah. Really. Oh my God. We could fold that back in. Yeah. So oh, it was. I. I remember. I sat in the backyard in my backyard with a glass of wine and listened to you guys, and I was like, "Wow! Like this play, like it hit me in a whole other way. I felt the story differently. I first of all, I had a little bit of distance from it, but also just not to be watching it and critiquing it in that way because I'm, you know, as a playwright, I'm always watching and yeah." Like, and adjusting and thinking they could do it this way or I should write it this way. So it was just wonderful to have it sort of wash over me and have this, just this experience of, this sort of visceral experience of just feeling it. it Absolutely. Was, yeah, oh, it was super cool. Wonderful. Yeah, I wish I could do that. yeah, I wish I could do that for every player. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I might now. I might have someone tape it or do a podcast and so I can just listen to it without watching it because I learned a lot. That's so cool. Look, yeah. look at us being all revolutionary in the theater. With I know, right? Tools. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you, the two of you together, it was just, it's really, was really moving. I was so just drawn in and you could feel the connection and I love it being a two-hander and it's such an intimate play. I mean, all play two-handers, I guess, are about intimacy in some way. Yes. So great to, yeah, to hear you two really dig into that. And it was very moving for me. I mean, it really, <laughs> a lot. yeah. All right. That's. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Chris, is it Christiana? Am I pronouncing Christiana, it? Christiana, yeah. Yeah, she's just, just lovely. I mean. Oh lovely. my God, oh. yes. I actually yeah. went back and did another play reading with her this year. Oh, you did series. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, like we're turn like we we have to figure out a way to actually just get ourselves in stage on a in yeah. a standard at this point. So, are you both company members at? We are. Yeah. Yeah. Both it- be back here next year, so there is opportunity to probably find more ways to work with each other. Yeah. We're not in the same shows, but we're tight. We're like we're buddies. So are you are you in the season right now that you're a company? Yeah, we're we're season? like six weeks left of the season. Oh, I've been here since January. It's oh, a long, long season. I've done like oh. eight, 188 plays this year, shows. Oh my god. Yeah, it's kind of like my schedule in particular is very Broadway like in terms yeah. of the number of shows over giant chunks of time. How many years have you have you done it there for? Been there for? This is my second season. Oh, okay. I um, when I transitioned was like, uh, it, I, it's hard to pin down a date because I did it in my own particular crazy punk rock way. Um, but like 2005, I came out in the New York Times. I had just co-founded a theater in New York, and I don't know why I came out in the New York Times, but I decided I did because you know, 2005. <laughs> why not? Nothing could happen. Um, <laughs> I had been doing theater in New York very successfully, playing like all these leads. And I played Henry V and Algernon and Rotating Rep and all of this sort of stuff. And then, you know, when I transitioned, I realized a couple of things, which was uh, one, the only roles that anybody was going to like look at me for 
was like dead body the cops made a joke about or live body the cops made a joke about. Right, right. That's yep. Yeah. But whatever happens, they were going to make a joke about me. Um, and I realized, and this gets to this sort of larger argument of representation in performance that we're having, not right. just trans people, but like we need more Asian stories. We need more Asian American, you know, that all of that sort of thing. Right. Is I realized that I had no time on the planet as a lived experience as a woman. And my, I didn't go to school for acting, so it's all utterly just instinctual. Yeah, I just yeah. do it. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that I would be basically doing like an extra layer of acting on top of anything I was doing to get mm -hmm. there because I just didn't have enough. It, it wasn't in my body, my, my sense of the world. It wasn't quite there. I still had a lot of, you know, hangovers of male socialization and privilege and all of that sort of shit. Right. Um, and so I retired. I quit oh. acting. Wow, for how uh, long? 13 years. Oh, my goodness. I just started back up in 2016. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, my wife got a job at Lawrence University in Wisconsin as a professor mm -hmm. of gender studies. Mm -hmm. And I moved out with her shortly thereafter. Got a job in the communications department. Because my day jobs have always been, like, building websites, taking photos, editing things, 3D animation, visual effects. Like I've always been like a pixel pusher designer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I did that for like a long time. And then out of nowhere, I got a lead in an independent film in 2016 and realized that the world had changed drastically. Uh, so I just quit my job, moved to LA. Uh, and I, so I've only been back at acting for three years. And you're at Oregon Shakes. Nice, and, nice. Yeah, like I immediately landed Oregon <laughs> yeah. Shakes. Nice. So my trajectory is stupid. It's interesting. It's like, wee. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've gone from like tiny little role to I ended up stepping in and replacing an actor in one of the best productions of Henry V the world has ever seen, playing Pistol. And I, very interestingly, you know, the, the way that it had been cast was a woman who was playing a man. The gender pronouns were male. Pistol hadn't changed. It's right. just a woman was playing him. Right. So I made this decision when I went on the first five times that I was like, oh, hey, screw it. I used to be an actor with a big giant boy voice and play all these things. Why don't I try that? Why don't I try that? And my time in LA had gotten to that second thing I was talking about, which is, um, that second layer of acting thing. So like when Jared Leto plays in Dallas Buyers Club, mm -hmm. he's not just playing, he's yeah. not playing a character. He's not just playing a character. He's also playing trans and playing the character. Right. And it was very apparent for the movie I did that when you cast a trans person as a trans person, right. they just play the character mm -hmm. because they don't have to do any of the other stuff. And exactly. so it becomes not showy and it becomes a lot more real and to the point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I get in panels and I talk about this and, you know, the, the rejoinder is, uh, well, acting is acting is acting. Right. So right. You, and should able, you should be able to play whoever it is. Cause right. it's acting. I think Scarlett Johansson just said she should be able to play a tree or a dog or something. Exactly. Yeah, right? You go, yeah. Scarlett Joe, you go. Um, right. <laughs> so when I, got to that put-in rehearsal for Pistol, I just decided in my head, I was like, 
you know what, if acting is acting is acting, then I'm going to really play pistol as a man because I know how to do that in a way that someone who is cis female doesn't know. Doesn't know, right. And I, I ended up sort of stumbling onto like my X-Men superpower as an actor and that I can literally play in both genders with a high degree of credibility. Yeah. Because it ended up getting one of the shows I'm in this year, Between Two Knees. Um, I'm kind of like the Kate McKinnon of this long, just two-hour Saturday Night Live, Monty Python-esque black yeah. comedy. I play like 12 to 15 people and, you know, a pedophilic priest, an idiotic TV reporter, yeah. a page guru. And they're all the genders and they're all the people. Yeah. And I just bounce between all of them. And it's because the guys who wrote that play saw me as Pistol. That's amazing. And then my other show is Duke, is Duke Senior and As You Like It. And she's just a woman. Uh, not just a woman, but Arden is female in our production. Uh, Jake is female. Da, 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 da. So I'm literally getting to just kind of play all over the place. And yeah, it's that's... really fun. Oh, that's so cool. That's and amazing. So, you know, then I get to sort of look at people who have the acting is acting is acting compliment, you know, thing. And I go, you're absolutely right. Acting is acting is acting. Yeah. Take your yeah. <laughs> so do you feel like people like, like Matt Bomer and like when he accepts a role or is playing a trans person, do you feel like it's there's a bit of a social responsibility in the climate that we're in right now for cis people to back off. Like Scarlett Johansson, didn't she just pull out of a movie that where she yeah, was supposed she to did. play? Yeah, to in order to give the trans. I mean, they to be telling their own your own stories. To be no, I absolutely to- think that. And and the irony is, is I've actually come come down. My my biggest argument is artistic at this point, and yeah. not political. And yeah. then I think we get better art. Right. We just get better art. We get truer, easier, more comfortable lived in art when we let the people who uh, have lived these lives tell these stories. Stories, right. Rather better. than worrying about who's playing what and if, exactly. Exactly. You just get better art. And that's the goal of the thing, ultimately, yeah. is to tell really good stories really, really well. Yeah. Uh, so take away as many obstacles to that goal. Right. And casting a cis man as a trans woman, you've made an obstacle because now they have to do this right. extra amount of, you know, performative horseshit to get there. Exactly. Um, and and it'll still ring a little weird because there's such a thing, as I said, lived experience in the world. Mm-hmm. Like even if it's something as stupid as let's just say high heels, right? Yes. I've right. spent 20 years in heels off and on at this point. Like, mm-hmm. I understand them. They're a thing I don't think about, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, but a man playing a, cis, uh, a trans woman or playing a woman has probably been wearing heels for maybe a month or two right. months. Right. Exactly. So that's exactly. Yeah. And it, that's subtle, but it's demonstrable. Like, mm-hmm. if, if you're super comfortable in, once again, just to use heels because they're so, you know, uh, loaded as far as a gendered thing. Um, women sort of, especially women who wear heels with some frequency, they're just shoes that they totally know how to navigate the world in. Right, right. It's in their body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then, if, if, but they, they do require time 
to get used to how you move in heels. You know what I mean? I don't want to like take this metaphor too far, but it's like, it's those little things and they all add up. And when you have someone who's comfortable in whatever that thing is, the extra things that go with performance, well, then they're not thinking about those things and they're just doing the character. Yeah. So you're right. I love that you're sort of approaching this with this. It's not about the political or the activism of it. It's about the art. And there's so so you, when you hear the argument that that to you know I, I should be able to play whatever role I want to play, that role put that aside, and to talk about that it's when we're doing something that's natural or that that we're really living honestly, then the story gets told. I mean that you can't you know I mean I I'm an actress and I've played all different types of roles and they all come from my experience but I have to tap into something in me in order to to do that to have exactly. that exactly yeah because yeah. it does ultimately just boil down to no matter whether you're like a super trained actor in some sort of kind of class of acting or whatever or you're like me who didn't go to school and is completely like, it's, you know, it's a play, it's a sandbox and I'm five years old and that's how I treat it. Right. Um, it still is all coming from like a very lived experience thing. Like the choices you make for characters come out of experiences and intuitions and maybe almost waking daydreams you've had about behavior. And then all of a sudden you're presented with this character that is going to allow you to do yeah. that. Exactly, and that, it's it's true of writing too. So as a when I'm writing something, it's all people. I the number one question I get, and it's always I'm sort of miffed by it because, but I get it, is, or is this autobiographical? Did this happen to you? What is real? What happened in your? Life? So everybody assumes that something in the play or something that I've written is happened to me. Yes, I mean, I mean, there's been a few things that I've have kind of, of their way into my stories, but for the most part, it's just my emotional life. And yeah. some of it being unconscious, you know, it's just stories that I mean, want to tell. And there's, I'm at a, well, I'll be at a place in my life when I need to, need to tell that. And when Absolutely. I wrote, I mean, true, I needed to tell, that was a story I wanted to tell. Would I tell it now? I probably not. It would be I'm telling something different now. So when I look back at things that I wrote years ago, I've, I'm not in that place anymore. Exactly. So it's an interesting thing when it comes to like time to do press, like I'll be talking about the play and it's always hard. People be like, now, where did you come up with this idea or how did you come up? And I, it, it because I've evolved, you know what I yes. mean? Things we change yeah. as performers, as artists, as people, as writers, it just changes. So I, the big things thing. about art is, is it's, it's a thing that literally asks the creator or the performer or whatever to engage in um, constant what if. Mm -hmm. if this happened to that? What would happen? What? Right. What, what if? Right. That, the power of that question drives so much of our storytelling, I think. Yes. It's more than this happened to me, so I must lay this down on the page. Exactly. Or, or I am extrapolating from a particular moment in my life and then playing what if. I right. think a lot of the really great art we've made just comes out of like, hey, what if? Right, right. It's so interesting. I actually, I actually um, heard Aaron Sorkin say recently that you don't have a story until you might have an idea, but you don't have the story until you say, but what if? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's when, because it adds the conflict in, it may, that's what's interesting. Not just 
something that happened to me yesterday. It have to go that further. Exactly. And so that's with when I look back at naming true, I just really don't like where did I these two people they ended up in this room. I don't know where I came up. I have no idea what I you know like where it came from. It was right. just something that I I wanted. I know I I knew I wanted to tell a story about two people that were healing, helping, healing each other and themselves in the process. That's all I can remember. Exactly. <laughs> so what, what, how was the production received? I was thrilled when I heard it got a production. I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, it went, it was, went, it was beautiful. Um, Urbanite is a great um, theater in Sarasota, Florida. They're new um, and they do great work and they put this in their season and I was thrilled because I'd been developing it in Seattle um, with a company there. And when I, when this ended up in the season, it, it was a little bit quicker than I thought it would be. I thought I was going to have a little bit more time to sort of work out some kinks. And especially being a two-hander, it was the hardest thing I've ever written. It's of course. Hard for me to, t it was, I don't know for all playwrights, but I, I felt like I it was difficult or to navigate that story with just two people in a room. Yes. You know, the very sort of not just put two people in a room and tell a story. It's difficult. You know, I don't have people <laughs> coming in and changing the dynamic. And yes. So I, it was challenging. And I, there was many, many drafts and it went through a lot of evolution, um, even more so than some of my other work. So I, but sure. I learned so much from it and it was just a, a great experience to be in the room when they were you were, I was just going to ask, did you get to be in the room? Yeah, I was there. It was, it was incredible. And it was, it was emotional and it was because it's such an emotional story. And just these two women in that room together, really dealing with the stuff that I put in that play. It, there's a lot that comes up. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a lot of, it was intense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You, played, you wrote an intense play. Yeah, and it's more intense. Usually, I write comedic, more more comedic. I mean, sort of dark comedies. But this is this has got comedy in it, but not. Yeah, I was just going to say, I remember feeling like there was plenty of potential for that yeah. kind of natural laugh. Right? Yeah. It's not a joke per se, but it's like a character trait that people are going to find funny or a tick, or right. even just the language itself was constructed in a way that it had the rhythm and sounds of a joke. Yes, and it and it and I found that it really needed that because there were times when the director and the artistic director at Urbanite were had me pulling back a little bit on some of the humor, and I was resistant because I felt like it really needed that lightness in it because yes. otherwise it would turn into some sort of dirge. I didn't want it to be heavy and about death. And yes, I mean, it's heavy. I, the show that um, this play that I'm doing right now, Between Two Knees, is written by um, the 1491. World premiere. Yeah. World premiere. Uh, written by the 1491, some Native American YouTube sketch comedy artists who've blown up and they're all delightful. Yeah. Um, and the story is literally Native American experience from Wounded Knee 1890 to the Wounded Knee takeover in the early 70s. And it's all about all the shit that happened to Native folk that we never talk about. Okay, right? yeah. So, yeah. like, boarding schools and involvement in wars and just wow. sh shitty treatment by the government. And it's a tragedy, right? Right. Except this is the most absurd, Monty Python, oh, awesome. ridiculous, dark, black comedy 
I've ever had a chance to do. And it's That's doing awesome. exactly that thing of using laughter mm -hmm. as a way to end run around the trauma. Yep. To go, look, yes, trauma real, but absurd also. Let's play with the absurd. Right, right. Because it's true, all these like super tragic things that happen in the world, if you just click your perspective over a tiny bit, Oh. It's like, that is the most absurd thing I have ever seen human beings do. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything you, in life, aren't we always sort of straddling pathos and tragedy? I mean, it's, yes. they pay self in comedy in ever in let's just life. And I feel like yes. if you don't tap into the light and the dark, then the stories don't ring as true or they don't resonate because it's being exactly. hammered over an audience's head, something that might be an issue. Yes. socially relevant issue driven and i that type of theater exhausts me and i often feel assaulted when i walk yes. out i'm like oh yes. my god <laughs> now yes. i've got to go home and really think about that and like what i'm doing to create you know like i feel guilty about something right. i feel i want a story to happen to me and experience it yes you need humans we're getting those experiences but we're getting those experiences sort of like through the back door because we're being so outrageously over the top, ridiculously stupid. Right. Uh, so much, it's so much like, it's really is like a giant episode of Saturday Night Live with the one topic going through it. Right. Um, and so the level of crazy and dumb and dumb jokes and playing with time and being silly and breaking the fourth wall all the time. Um, people do walk out feeling guilty because like, you know, we have a predominantly white older audience Right, like right. Most theaters do. Most they do, yes. <laughs> um, but we're asking them to do a couple of things that they don't usually get asked, which is to sit there but to be uncomfortable because we go after white people because there's no way to do this story without going after white people. Uh -huh. If it's going to be from native perspectives, well, right. then white people are the bad, are the villains. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, so we're basically asking our audiences to sit there and be the other for the first time in their life, That's even great. though they're still the majority of the people in the room. That's awesome. And it's so it's it's happening in that way that, you know, if we if this had been like a big dirge, depressing tragedy about Native American experience. Yeah, we would have arrived there to some degree with some of the audience. And I think they would have felt more comfortable because you know, the, the default response to all of these horrible things that happen in the world is to treat them with some amount of sacredness. Right. You know, to be sacred and, you know, hands off a little bit and, right. you know, respectful, quiet, you know, all of that. And we're doing the exact opposite. We're making fun of all of it. And yeah. asking people to sit there and acknowledge that nobody's saying you did it. Right. Nobody's saying that. Right. right. But you're where you are because of what your our ancestors did, right? Oh, that's great. And so it's like we're using, once again, the power of sort of actual lived experience stuff, but through the lens of the natives, these native guys. And they're unapologetic. And they like, this is what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're not going to cater to your sense of white guilt. So we're not going to cater to any of them. Y'all are grown. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't need to hold your hand. And besides, this is how we joke on the res. You uh -huh. want to know what Indian life is like? Well, there's a huge amount of black humor. 
a huge amount of inappropriate jokes about things that you think are sacred. And it's so delightful to be having this conversation with that audience mm. and winning them over by making them laugh. Making them laugh. Yes, we get people, yeah, we get people to walk out every show who can't, who just won't do it. Yeah. But we also, we end the show with a song called So Long White People. <laughs> and we're asking the audience to wave their arms in the air. And it's my favorite moment on stage in my entire life is coming yeah. up the trap, playing an electric guitar, <laughs> and seeing old white people waving their arms to a song telling them to go away. Oh, that's it's hilarious. Like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever been a part of. Yeah, that's so great. And see, that's so great because the humor, it also, I think it sort of opens somebody up. It, you, you break somebody down. Well, humor, your you, your guard goes down because you're laughing, you're yes. experiencing something. And so something will hit you in a different way rather than if you're sitting there thinking really hard about it. And yes, or, thinking, oh, this is yeah. serious stuff. Yeah, because we do, you know, switch do there are a couple of really devastating emotional 180s yeah, that happen in the play. And like, you know, you can hear people freaking really lose their shit. Cause yeah. it's like all of a sudden the tragedy hits home and it hits home from like because we've lulled them into a uh like, oh, you know, and you're, maybe you're not gonna treat this, you're being all silly. And right. then all of a sudden you can feel it's like feeling a room full of people go. Oh fuck! This all happened. Yeah, this happened. And yeah. then another dumb joke comes up, and so they don't yeah. have time to stew in it yet. It's so great. It's, it's my favorite kind of art. It's my favorite kind of theater. <laughs> I love it. I it it the writers that do that. I endlessly. I just think they're amazing, and it's it's a hard. It's a it's a. You don't see it as much, I don't think, in the theater. theater the no. theater, to me, my gripe about it recently or of late has been that it, I feel like it's a little bit too dramatic, too issue driven. I'm not, in, I'm not going to the theater and laughing. I want more comedy. I want more lightness. Yeah, yeah. and even it, when it comes out of just like what you're saying, I mean, I a play that I wrote called The Buffalo Kings is a family drama on the the patriarch of the family, the older man has Alzheimer's and there's a very funny moment and the whole family's fighting and it's it just mayhem. It takes place on Christmas and the father, the, this man walks into the kitchen and puts his hand into a bag of cat food and starts eating the cat food. And the audience was laughing in their love, the moment every night. I mean, it was just uproarious laughter. And the moment that happened, silence and you can I would watch the audience because I watch the play a lot of nights and I'd watch them go <gasps> and feel suddenly feel oh I shouldn't have been laughing like I was laughing up until that moment yes. and then that's serious but it was funny when he did yes. that it is funny that he's eating the cap it's tragic but yes. it is funny that he yeah. and there's and a lot of and so people it was just and people were arguing in the after the play you'd have hear people talking about how how could you be laughing at that moment? And you should, and that's a kind of, I love that kind of thing in storytelling. Me too. Yeah. When you yeah. just. And, yeah. and with one of the, so when I was uh, an actor of first life, whatever, I don't even know how to do the first go around of acting. Yeah. Yeah. I did mostly classical theater. Um, yeah. I did played a lot of the classics, not so much a lot of modern stuff, like, you know, yeah. some, but not as much as I would have liked to some degree. Although, right. 
I will say the opportunity to be in a Genet play is something I'm grateful for to the end of my day. Yeah. Uh, to be able to play in some of those strength, those wonderful traditions that are historical to our craft. Right. That was my big sentence of the day. Um, <laughs> that was good. Since I got to OSF, like I'm inundated with new work, brand new plays. Between yeah. Tunis is the first world premiere I've ever done. Okay. Um, I've done three plays with Play for Keeps, all new right. plays. Right. Um, and I'm on the, the sort of play reading committee for the 2021 season here, oh. where you know a bunch of us at OSF get in a room, actors, uh, producers, uh, marketing, you know, people who just give a shit and have an right. interesting thing to say about stuff. Right. And OSF is, as you probably know, really turned into a place that is incubating new work. It sure is, yeah. In, like, a, didn't, yeah. in a pretty amazing way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're getting these really lovely, I'm just, I'm like swimming in new plays now. Oh, how wonderful. It's, it's so utterly delightful to be a part of the, um, the creation of new work mm-hmm. and just the reinterpretation of old work. Exactly. And I'm totally down with reinterpreting or getting to play right. in old work because it's awesome. Right. The importance of being earnest will be one of be my favorite plays in the whole world yeah. forever. Yeah. You know, and that's by anybody's definition old. Uh, right. right. But it's still funny. Uh, <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> yeah. But now it's like, you know, I even got to take part in a workshop this weekend for a new play where it was really just sort of, Here's six actors. Here's the playwright. We have a stage manager. We have five hours. Let's just read the play through and talk about it. And whatever you need us to do, as, you know, us actors for you, writer. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we're here to do that. It's and really it was great. it's such a delightful experience to be um, collaborating on the art form that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. I, I love the whole play development, new work, this whole sort of the process is endlessly fascinating for me. And I find myself with like in talkbacks with audiences, I never want to, you know, lecture them or it's not it, but it's, I love to talk about how this process is so important for theater for the landscape of American theater, we need to be developing new work and we need to be reading it and rewrite, having the writer go home and do rewrites and then coming back and reading it again and more rewrites. And it just needs to, you need to dig into it with actors, with artists, with designers and figure out what makes it work because you have, it's just, and it's just a, the collaboration of it thrills me. It's endlessly thrilling and it's terrifying. It's also terrifying yeah. as the writer. Sometimes it's like, oh my God, I can't well, believe I'm doing this. <laughs> you're, so writing and I think, you're writing in the one sort of field of art that I think of outside of like classic author thing. Right. Um, in the performing arts, I think of theater like is the writer's medium for more, more, more than anything. I think the yeah. writer is the supreme, you know, the, the go-to, right? right. Right. And like you know, television, it's the showrunner. Right, film, it's, film, it's the director, right. Um, and so you're writing in the, 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 the medium where, of course, it redounds most on you because you're the one who's ultimately, like, it's your name that's going to be above the title of the play or right. really close to it. Right. Before anybody else's name is, which I think is 
all together fitting in prom, prom right. Um, but that makes sense that, you know, from your perspective, I can't imagine not wanting as much um, boots on the ground with new work as you could possibly get before somebody pays a dollar to go watch it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and just like what Oregon Shakes is doing and having these these theaters that are putting resources into new play development is so important and I think it's it needs to go beyond just because you're seeing a lot of this now a lot of new play festivals which is wonderful I but I also want theaters that like American Stage that I was the playwright in residence with this past season is now taking my the play I developed there and it's in the season their next season so I'm in February I go into rehearsals for it and that is what it's all about is yes. developing your work and then seeing it realized because just readings isn't enough. And that's become sort of a thing now where it's just to hear, um, cause I'm thrilled just to hear my play read, of but course. honestly, I want to see, I want to see the production. Yeah. I want to see it. I want to yeah. see yeah. for a theater to put their, like what American stage is doing to put their time and resources and into it and to also take the risk because it's brand new and there's no, we don't have any blueprint yeah. for it. It might not work. I think yeah, it's, exactly. like, you know, it's just, it's, it's a huge leap of faith and all the artists and all the designers and everybody involved is investing a little bit differently than they would if it were a play that had even been done once before. Yes. We are going into completely unknown territory. Yes. So we'll go into that rehearsal room and, you know, it could be I'll have to do a rewrite because I don't have enough time to get an actor from maybe I didn't write enough time to get them to that door. Yes, exactly. It doesn't quite work when it's I've heard it read six times. But now that it's on its feet, I'm like, hmm. It's kind of not, it's, it's not, okay, yeah, we got to work on so that. You have to have your actors being really ready to like take that jump with you. Okay, we're going to do this. We've got three weeks of rehearsal. Yeah. And then, you know, so it's intense. And it's, that's, I'm, I'm so grateful for theaters like American Stage or what Oregon Shakes is doing to put their resources behind it. And not just to keep doing this, you know, churning out the same no. play. I mean, next season here. We have an absolute world premiere, first time play. Yeah. Um, I believe we have a couple that are like maybe getting their first or second productions. Yeah. And then we have Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. Right. And right. what I love about what we can do here, which is frankly very rare, there are very few places in the world anymore who do this kind of thing. Right. Is because, you know, by the time you get to July, you've got 11 shows running. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've got this chance to sort of experience Shakespeare and something that was written three months ago. Right. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And I know. It's, but it's seeding the new work within the established work that I love. I love I being too. able to go, no, the, the, it's also, a, it's a, I think it makes it a little bit easier for the audience to take chances. Because mm-hmm. you're like, well, I'm coming up to Ashland for a weekend, so I definitely want to see Macbeth. Right. A brand new play. Okay. But I know I'm going to see Macbeth, so I might, I can take a chance on the brand new play. Right. That makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. And so it creates this. Yeah. And then I love 
yeah, just to put it with American stage, they put one new play in this season. And that's just, it gives the audience something. It's also something exciting for them because they're like, Oh, this has never been. We're the first fun. ones to ever see this. Yeah. yeah. It's exciting. I mean, that is. And I think it, it's sort of, cause we do need to kind of keep prompting the audience, you know, to, cause we still have to make, we're always going to be working on keeping uh, our audiences, you know, under the median age of 90. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I say that with affection because those people are badass and they support the American theater. Right. But, you know, I love seeing high school students in the audience. Yeah. I really love seeing 20, 30 year olds. Me too. On Me a date too. at a theater. Like, that's, that's what awesome. More of, and it needs to be promoted, and there needs to be ways to incentivize that in every way possible because. Yeah with well this is a whole other conversation but with the world that we live in now with social media and with i mean people just young people aren't going to the theater no tv is so good i mean why exactly (laughs) i know but i also think that this is sort of like there is a, a real chance for theater because it is it's like books right we've been predicting the demise of the written word book thing for right 100 plus years at this point, once radio came out, you know, Thomas Edison was very famous, like the book is on its way out. Right. Um, and we've been doing that with theater forever. Right. Except I think that what YouTube is giving us, specifically the sort of like, go film it yourself, go make it yourself thing. Uh-huh. Um, I think that that's kind of opening a door for theater to sort of reassert its own uniqueness. To almost remind people like, oh, no, you know, you should actually go see, like, just a bunch of really good actors in a room doing where you could completely fuck it up by just yelling at any moment, right? right? Right. Like, you could screw the whole thing up by being, this sucks, or whatever, right? right? Right. And and I love that tension that is always, because I always feel that when I'm in the audience at a play. Like, it always crosses my evil little mind that I could just go, hey! (laughs) Me too! (laughs) Just ruin it. That's like Billy Bob Thornton said he doesn't go to theater because he's says he's he's going to scream something out. He just has the urge. He knows yes. he can do it. So yeah, yes. yeah. Because the audience is part of it. I mean, I could absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah so that, I mean, I think there's. I think I think I'm I'm hopefully seeing. You know, this is a destination theater, so you see people from all over. But it also means it's a certain wealthier demographic because they have to travel. Right. Uh, but I, we, one of the things that's really amazing about being a theater as big as this place is, yeah. is the ability to really drop in and do, uh, give massive exposure to high school and uh, undergrads and middle school to a wide range of things. Because we get, you know, obviously the school groups come to see As You Like It, but we also get a bunch of high schoolers sing Between Two Knees. And my favorite thing and what gives me hope is that we're writing these new plays that are doing their own thing with theater Mm -hmm. uh, that's not like that um, is I think it's reasserting what theater can do. Because I know with knees, one of my favorite things that I hear is high school students going afterwards going, I want to find a way to see that again. I want to come see that again. Mm-hmm. And you know they can't because they don't have money and they're right. probably bust in here from somewhere else. Right. But that their urge 
was not like, yes, that was a very good Shakespeare thing. But their first thing they say to you is, man, I really got to find a way to see that again. I really want to see that again. I've never seen anything like that. That was fun. So exciting. And it's like when you're getting those responses from 17, 18 year olds Mm -hmm. who are not theater kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, so the kids who got busted right. because it's their English class. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's and they're the ones going. Wow, that was awesome! I can't. That was like doing. It was like going to stand up comedy, but I couldn't really like heckle. Never <laughs> also right. like that. Right. Um, but it's like getting that. The more work that we can do, that really sort of, and this I think gets all the way back to the representation thing. Mm-hmm. Like everybody uh-huh. just wants to see versions of themselves up they there. They do. They do. And naming true, actually, when they did that at, at Urbanite, it was one of the most rewarding things for me was to see transgender kids were coming with their parents to see this play, and they would see it multiple times. And it, it, I mean, I, it was really moving for me because I never dreamed that wasn't in the. I wasn't thinking about that because no, I know you were thinking about telling this story yeah, I'm just telling these, story, just... these trans kids come and then that we would have once a week there'd be a talk back sure participate and most of them i think i participated in and to hear their just pure joy over being able to watch themselves it, it was it really one of the most moving things that i've ever been a part of in the theater and I think, and I'm not, and so not just for trans, for that, for trans but people, but for anybody to see yeah. themselves. Well, like, it's so important like for young you. people. Yeah, they we have. have a, we have a number of Asian American um, acting company members here. Mm-hmm. And like watching them be so utterly stoked that Crazy Rich Asians was coming. Yeah. And like organizing and getting other people to go to screenings and stuff because they were so. You know, and I don't think of, I, I don't, it was instructive to me mm-hmm. to realize that this representation thing is so much bigger than any one group. Yes. Yeah. Right? And that, it, yeah, you do make better art. But, you know, like I get Instagram messages from teens with some frequency, um, queer teens, and not just trans or gender kids. Yeah. Like, there's something about seeing a visibly queer person on stage kicking ass and taking names and being very unapologetic about it that I think, uh, you know, like I was saying really earlier, the activism is my activism is being the best goddamn actor I could possibly be. Right. Because I'm going to, how are you going to argue against that if I made you cry and laugh? Exactly. (laughs) And I love that you're saying that because I think the more we take out the political correctness of it is like you can just put that all aside. If we just tell stories and tell them honestly and we're it makes so much more sense to concentrate on the art. Oh, I could not agree more. Most. And so I think when we get muddle it up with a lot of the talk of being politically correct. And I mean, one thing that I have trouble with is I feel like writing comedy, I've become a little bit, um, and not with Naming True, but with this play that I've recently written, I feel that I censored myself a bit at times and got a little tentative because I didn't want to offend. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that it would be okay because I'm just 
feel, I feel like I didn't want to say anything that was off color in any way because originally the, the character in it is a, was a bit of a sort of an Archie Bunker type. And I thought I didn't want to go too far with it. So I was censoring myself, but I don't want to do that. I want to be able to just tell stories and be sensitive and be, yeah. and not be worried about what's politically correct, what's wrong, what's right and wrong. I just, I think we're, we're, we're having a really big conversation in the artistic world, but actually in the, you know, the C-suites and, uh, you know, basically anywhere we get people who gather and make power. And right. we're having this really interesting discussion about comedy, what's funny. Yeah. You can what you can and can't say. Okay, I know. And what your attitude towards that is. Right. Uh, we have Me Too, obviously, which is uh, hugely important and vastly overdue. But that is also doing, there's a lot of, I think, good, well-meaning self-censorship going on all over the place because we're trying to figure out what the new rules are. Right. And I think what we're starting to realize is the rules are very, very simple and we're not used to that. And the rules are don't be a dick. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. If you have to do something controversial or something, then own it. Right. Own it and have a well thought out, you know, your defense can't be, well, I thought it was funny. Like your right. defense no, should exactly. be something bigger than that. Like, no, right. I'm actually trying to. Right, right. It comes out of chance organically and then you feel, I, yeah, it's just, a, so that's, I'm just trying to kind of navigate that at this point in my career and where we are sort of as a culture right now. And it's something that's a challenge for me and that I don't, I, cause I really love writing comedic things. And so, and it's, these are dark comedies yeah. so kind of real life situations. So that's why I'm, you know, I, it's, it's just been a learning curve. Gotcha. Yeah. I see we have five minutes left. So yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> um, what are your, what is, what's like your, what is your 2020, Jesus, 2020, what does your next year have in store for you? Uh, so, well, next, so 20, February of 2020, we go into rehearsals for, the, it's called the People Downstairs at American Stage, and it's a um, four hand, or four people in the play, and um, I've kind of been writing it over the last maybe year and a half and developing it, so I'm thrilled to be going it's it's just been cast, and I'm so excited because I was involved in the cast of it or it skyping in when they were doing the audition. Yeah. and I'm just so excited to be to be in the rehearsal room again because I haven't been since then, uh, and that was in 2017. So I'm so it's been a while. Yeah, I'm really really excited, and it's a it, I think it I it's it was received well in the readings, and it did you know people seem to really really love it, but you know it's I'm. It's that going into it. It's exciting yeah. and racking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm going to be back here next year. Um, yeah. I, I got, I, they, I'm still blown away by it. I'm going to be playing Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. Really? And that's like ridiculously <laughs> awesome. You know, it's awesome. uh, mind boggling. Uh, you know, my, like I keep saying, my trajectory just still sort of makes me go, is this really happening? Incredible. Um, congratulations. Thank you. So and then I'll also be in The Tempest. So I actually get to do two Shakespeare shows I've always wanted to do. Right. And that's I get to spend my, my my year in two plays that have magic as an element. Oh, my God. Almost like fantasy fairy tales. 
Like I'm just, it's so me. I'm so yeah. excited. Oh, that's so, so, so when does your season finish the season currently that you're uh, end of October? So okay. I have November and December to basically just regroup and get my head together. Um, try to make a little money on the side mm-hmm. and I'll be back here on January starting. Oh, and then, oh, oh. fantastic. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to hear about it. Maybe I'll be there. I've, I've never been to Oregon. Shows, oh, you've got to come. You've always, come. always wanted to, and it just has never happened. So I'm, well, if you do come, I will, I will do my best to get you some tickets to things. Great. That would as be a, as a thank you for naming true. Oh, thank you so much for being part of the naming true that podcast that was just a delight i can give you no higher praise than i would like to be in one of your plays thank you very much (laughs) i would be the actor is always looking for a job yes (laughs) this was so great to talk to you yeah this was delightful i'm really glad we did this yeah good luck with everything with finishing the season out and best of luck with next season and i will try to you yeah. too. And I can't wait to hear about how, you know, the new show goes for you. Yeah. I'm pay attention. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, pay, I'll, yeah. It's called the people downstairs and it's, you know, it's, yeah, I'm excited, but good. yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, this was great. Um, yeah. Have a great wonderful job. vacation with the family. I hope that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're not going to spill any family secrets here. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into the family stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to go do laundry because it's my day off. All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, have a good rest of the day. Yeah, you too. Be well. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this amazing conversation between playwright Natalie Simons and actress Rachel Krell. Now, for that special announcement we were talking about at the top of the show. We want you to be sure to tune in next week, as we will be releasing in our free podcast, Naming True, written by Natalie Simons and starring Rachel Krell, both of whom you just heard. This play is also starring the amazing Christiana Clark. You don't want to miss it. Also, before we go, we here at the Ashley New Place Festival want to tell you how much we are looking forward to welcoming you to this year's annual Fall Festival, where we will feature our four winning plays this October 16th through the 20th. The Fall Festival is an amazing week of receptions and workshops, culminating in the reading of our four winning plays performed by incredible actors, many from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and Southern Oregon University's theater department. Tickets are now available at ashlandnewplays.org. Also, if you're a playwright, submissions for the 2020 Fall Festival are now open. Go to ashlandnewplays.org for more information. The Play for Keeps podcast is a production of the Ashland New Plays Festival here in Ashland, Oregon. It's directed by James Pagliasotti. This episode was co-produced by Cara Quinn Lewis and me, Andy Herndon, with art direction by Cara Quinn Lewis and written content edited by Carol Florian. Special thanks to AMPF Artistic Director Kyle Hayden, Associate Artistic Director Jackie Apodaca, Fall Festival host playwright Beth Kander. Be sure to visit us online at playforkeeps.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Help us spread the word, like, follow, share, and subscribe. I'm your host, Andy Herndon, and until next week, remember, want to play? Play for Keeps. <laughs>